Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and with thanksgiving in our hearts and appreciation, O oh God, that you give us this time each week to, to speak to us uh, through your word. And we know that your word is truth. And we need your truth. We live in a world where there's lies abounding all around us, half-truths and partial truths that are being spoken. But dear Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today so that we might know you, Lord, so that we might obey you, that we might honor you in all that we do and say. But God, just knowing your word is not enough. We pray that the Holy Spirit would apply these truths to our hearts and our lives. We've confessed this morning that we are weak. And we are prone, Lord, to, to drift and to go wander and astray. But we pray that you would strengthen us in our inner beings to know you and to obey you and to love you and to delight in you. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, Brian Chapel tells the story of, of Hudson Amerding, who was president of Wheaton College. And he describes Amerding as having sort of a, a, a manner, a bearing and a manner of a naval officer who had commanded many men in times of great trial. So you can only imagine what kind of a disciplined, uh, well-structured man he was. Well, one day, President Amberding uh, called Michael Dwight, that's not his real name, but that's the one that Brian Chapel uses. He called him to the front of the chapel assembly there at Wheaton College. Now, you have to understand that this story takes place at a time in our country when bell-bottoms were popular and guys had long hair and there was just a certain attitude towards authority, if you remember those days. But uh, Michael Dwight was... Uh, just the perfect stereotype of that kind of guy. As a matter of fact, he was known as the leader among all the rebellious students at Wheaton College. And so when uh, Michael Dwight was called up front by the president, everyone in the chapel held their breath just to see what kind of fireworks were going to take place as these two very different men were now about to uh, meet. And as uh, Michael Dwight came forward and Hudson Amberdeen addressed him. He did so directly. And this is what he said. Michael Dwight, he said, I want you to know that you are a brother in Jesus Christ. And he says, I love you and I, that I refuse to allow what others may think about our differences to come between us. Well, these two men who were so different at that very moment embraced each other. And what's so interesting is, is at that time in Wheaton College, there was a lot of tension on the campus just because of these different groups. And uh, Brian Chapel describes it. He says, he said the pent up ten tension that had existed up to that point just sort of went out of the campus. He said, just almost like air going out of a balloon. And he said, for, for many students, even many, many, many years later, that was a defining moment for their college experience there at Wheaton. Well, as I think about that story and the embrace of those two different men, it's sort of a picture of what most of us wish the church looked like. Uh, persons uh, quite different in appearance and demeanor, uh, generations and different in emphasis and attitudes and gifts and maybe personalities expressing love for each other 
believing and acting as though each were valuable and precious in the sight of God. I mean, isn't that what we wish every church would be like? But unfortunately, if you've been in the church uh, very long, and I know I've grown up in the church and I've been in a lot of different churches, unfortunately, that's not the way it always is. Christians uh, fight with each other, sometimes over the most ridiculous things. And, and Christians who oftentimes have a tendency to fight uh, believe that their church is at its best when the church agrees with them because they know that they're right. And, and as a result, you see churches that will split sometimes over the most non-essential things. Like should the chairs in the sanctuary be red or should they be blue or should they be brown? And I have seen churches who would completely split over something as ridiculous as that. And so you have some Christians who look down upon others uh, while exalting themselves in the eyes of others. Unfortunately, I wish I could say, I mean, I wish it didn't exist, but if there's going to be fighting amongst Christians, I wish we would keep it in-house. But unfortunately, now with the Internet, so many Christians have taken it public. And you see a lot of unchristian attitudes on Facebook and blog posts, even in texts that they send uh, each other. And, uh, and, and so you just sort of see all this displayed, this unchristian love before the world. Now, let me be fair, okay? Uh, when we're in conflict with others, the issues that we oftentimes disagree with do not seem as insignificant as what I just made it sound. And sometimes they're not. And, and because we feel so strongly about the issue in question, it can sometimes be hard to differentiate sometimes between what God is telling us in his word and what we think is right or what we think God is telling us in his word. And to be honest, there, there may be times when we have differences with others when we are right. And the person that we're disagreeing with is wrong. But even the Bible talks about that. And Paul, and I, you just got to appreciate this about him, he just faces these things head on in his letter to the Ephesians. Because the problem's not just an issue of today, but Paul knew that those Christian churches that gathered in various house churches around the city in the New Testament were people who, from different ethnic backgrounds, different social backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, people with different personalities and priorities. And so he knew there would be conflict. And brothers and sisters, conflict there was. I mean, if you want to know if there was conflict in the early church, just read your Bible. I mean, look at 1 Corinthians. You have, you have a church there where people are uh, self-promoting. You know, they're trying to exalt themselves and they're pursuing showy gifts so you can be like, hey, look at me. Look how spiritual I am. And oh, look at this leader that I hang out with. You know, I, I'm part of his group, you know, because we want to be somebody. Or, or Galatians, where, where Paul is so careful to talk to the church there about the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit. And even encouraging Christians to be careful not to devour one another because there were disagreements. And then even Philippians. Philippians has to be one of Paul's favorite churches. It was a church that supported him early on in his ministry. And, and he, you know, he just had such tender words to say to that church. But even in writing his letter to the Philippians, he says to them, you know, but there's a couple of women in your congregation that are struggling. And they're not getting along with one another. 
and these are dear sisters in Christ, I want you guys as a church to come alongside them and help them to agree with one another. And so Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And, and I want us to see here three things that Paul is talking about. First of all, he, he urges us, he pleads with us, he begs with us to live like Christians. We see that in verse 1. But then he also sort of explains what that means to live like a Christian. He says, by maintaining unity that we see in verse 3. And then in verse 2, uh, we maintain that unity as we love other Christians. And so I want us to, to look at those three points today. First of all, to, to live like Christians, or as Paul says, uh, to walk in a manner or live in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, Paul is making a transition here in chapter 4 uh, from speaking primarily about doctrinal teachings to practical instructions. And, and we know that because he uses that word, therefore, that therefore replies back to everything that he's been saying in chapters 1 through 3. And he's saying, in essence, I've just laid out for you all the teachings about what God has done in your life. Therefore, in response to what God has done, this is how you are to live. You see, true Christian teachings not intended to produce just knowledge only. The whole point of doctrine is to create a faith that responds in action. I think it's very telling that in the first chapter of Ephesians, as Paul is talking about the Ephesian believers, he recognizes their faith, but he says, I recognize your faith as it is expressed in love. In other words, it's not just something you believe, but it's something he saw worked out in their lives as well. But, but likewise, Paul spends three chapters teaching doctrine because the only proper foundation for Christian living is Christian truth. It's not like we're just supposed to go out and try to be a Christian any best way we know how. But we are to do it based on what God has said in His word. So as we approach these commands, we need to be careful not to think that we just need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try to be better people or better Christians. No. Paul, Paul ends chapter 3 with what? A prayer. And he's praying for the Holy Spirit to work in the inner parts of your hearts as Christians to make them like Jesus. He describes it this way, being filled with all the fullness of God. And so as we come this morning and we think about living like Christians and by maintaining unity as we love others, we must be obedient to do these things, but recognize that if we tried to just do this ourselves, we would fail, brothers and sisters. And so in our, if we did this in our own strength, so we must come to God and we must prayerfully say, Lord, Make these things a reality in my life. Help me, oh God, to live in your grace, to walk in a manner that's worthy. And so Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You see, Paul is stating that there is a manner or uh, a certain way in which Christians are to live. It is a lifestyle in which we say yes to certain things and we say no to other things. But it's not just a rule-keeping uh, religion. It's not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Rather, all Christians, before coming to faith in Jesus Christ, 
were living in rebellion and as enemies of God. And as a matter of fact, we were alienated from God because of our sin and our selfishness. And, and, and it not, our sin not only alienated us from God, but also from other people. And so while we were in that state of misery, God, through his mercy and the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ, reconciled a people to himself and with each other. And so Jesus' death on the cross purchased peace, peace, peace with God and peace with each other. And as Christians, we become children of God and part of his family, the church. And we enjoy that renewed relationship with God and his people. In other words, we belong. And so we live in a way that is worthy of the call that God has placed in our lives and making us his children and part of the church. So, so the lifestyle that we live that says yes to certain things and says no to other things is, like I said, not just a, a rule-following religion, but it's because God has pursued us when we were still enemies, and he has made a way for us to be forgiven and right with him. And so uh, Paul urges us to live in such a way that our lives are worthy of this gospel, of this work that God has done in our hearts. And so we come to God with gratitude and praise uh, to say, God, I would more than happily live this way, even suffering for your sake. And, and we see that as, for, as in Paul, in his words, in the beginning of that verse, because Paul doesn't beg the Ephesians to do something that he's not willing to do. He's writing this from prison. You know, he's living worthy of the gospel and it has cost him great personal sacrifice because he was in prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he says, I'm willing to do this and, and I'm begging and calling you to do this as well. And so he calls us to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. But he calls us to do that by maintaining unity. Look at verse 3. He said, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, the unity of the Spirit is the unity that the Holy Spirit creates and inhabits as he makes us believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is not thinking here about organizational unity or denominational unity or even ecumenical unity. You know, we have a tendency to view the church only from an organizational structure, whereas Paul's view is really a spiritual one. Uh, the unity Paul is interested in is not where we all come together under the same organizational structure and we answer to a certain human uh, government, but he is thinking about the foundational spiritual unity that unites all true believers in Christ. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he uses the imagery of the body, specifically in verses 12 and 13. And he talks about how we are united with one another. So brothers and sisters, those in this congregation who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him are, are united to uh, the believers at Landmark Christian Church and Faith Baptist Church and Andover Methodist Church. All those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because we are united in the Holy Spirit. I think of it this way, you know, as as you know, if you think of the, a wheel on a bicycle, for example, you have the center part and you have the spokes and you have the tire. And if you think of the, the center part of that, that tire, or that wheel, as Jesus Christ, 
And the individual believers are like united to that center part by the spokes. Okay, and in the same way as individual believers, we are united to Jesus Christ. But also, as we are united to Jesus Christ, there's also the wheel that connects all of us. And so we are also united with one another. And that's what Paul is, is talking about here. So he, he calls this the unity of the Spirit because men and women do not and cannot create it. Notice that he didn't say create unity or have unity. What's the word he uses? Look at your Bibles. He says maintain. The unity is already there. You know, Paul's not urging the Ephesians to create the unity of the Spirit, but to keep it. God in Christ, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, has created this unity. And he has done so by the grace of the new birth from above that only God, the Holy Spirit, can effect. That we see in John chapter 3, how we're born again in the Spirit. And there God enables us to repent and to believe the gospel and become members of one body, his church. And so all Christians everywhere are one in Christ. Our unity is rooted in the Spirit who is himself our bond of union with Christ. So we hear a lot today about the problems of Christian division and how Christians are not united. But Paul says that Christian church is not divided, but it is one body. Look at verse 4. You see that. He, he uses that imagery. And by the way, we're not going to get through all six verses this morning. There was just too much here. We're only going to get through three verses. Uh, we'll cover the rest next week. But he, he, Paul says that the Christian church is not divided. And he's not that the church ought to be the body, but that the church is the body. That the church is united. There is one body one unified church. The problem in, in the church is not that we lack unity, but that we do not manifest our unity in Jesus Christ. In other words, we don't, we're, it's not apparent. It doesn't, just, it's not displayed. We don't show that unity. And we definitely don't do that oftentimes to a watching world. Even though Jesus prayed in John 17, verses 20 through 26, for this very unity that it would be seen. So pursuing visible public unity is really, brothers and sisters, not a luxury that Christians can ignore. To do so is to treat the Lord's high priestly prayer as unrealistic or undesirable. We are united and we are to show that unity. So, Christ, so true Christian unity is accomplished by the Holy Spirit's life-renewing, life-transforming presence and power in our lives. Now, this, so this unity can't be manufactured by us. Okay, It must only be maintained by us. If every Christian is indissolvably united to Christ, then our foundational unity can't be harmed. That can't be taken away. You know, our unity with believers and here within this church and in other churches can't be taken away. However, the unity of the Spirit can be fractured and marred and even defaced by sin. And so Paul told the church in Rome that ungodly living by professing believers can cause the name of God to be blasphemed among Gentiles and render the church's witness to the world is incredible. Incredible. So uh, in Romans chapter 2, verse 24, you, you see that. 
So Paul uses very strong language here to impress upon the Ephesians his concern that they walk worthy of their calling in Christ, a walk that will manifest itself in maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of t peace. Now maintaining the church's unity is to be pursued, he says here, eagerly. Eagerly, not casually, but eagerly. And partly the reason why Paul commands that is because the language Paul uses here tells us that this maintenance won't just happen. It requires effort. You know, if we do nothing and we just exist and we don't give this effort and we're not praying for God to work in our midst as a church, we will just begin to fall apart and be at odds with one another. And so we need to, to eagerly pursue this because it doesn't just automatically happen. Secondly, because this unity is also to be a public reflection of the unity of the Godhead, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know, we, we are desirous to reflect the character of the God that we love and the God that we serve. And so we should eagerly pursue this, this uh, unity. Now, how do we maintain this unity? What, is that, what does that look like in a church? Well, look at verse 2. Um, it's as we love other Christians. He says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. So, if the unity of the Spirit is to be maintained, it will only be done so if, first of all, there is humility. I like uh, when, when Augustine, the great early church father, was asked, What is the chief Christian graces? He asked what the chief Christian graces were. And he replied, humilitas, humilitas, humilitas. Humility, humility, humility. It's sort of like we say with real estate. Location, location, location. And it's the same way. If, if, if you want to know the chief of all graces, he said it is humility, humility, humility. And, and Jesus drew personal attention to this grace in his own life. If you want, look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 a very familiar passage. And Jesus, in describing himself, says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your soul. You see that sense of a lowliness of heart in Christ's example to his church. So the humble are those who seek, uh, who do not seek their own good, uh, but selflessly seek the good of other people. The humble are not self-promoting or self-advertising, but the humble, um, at the same time, having said that, they may be bold, and they may be courageous, and they may even be strong-minded individuals, but they are always looking beyond themselves to esteem other believers as better than themselves and never insisting on their own ways. But brothers and sisters, is it not a temptation in our midst? We want other people to like us. We want other people to see, you know, what we know. We want other people to value us. And so sometimes are we not tempted to try to sound maybe more spiritual or, you know, I just want people to know how much I know about the Bible. Or I just want people to know what a great relational person I am or what a servant I am. And so sometimes we can fall into the trap of sort of exalting ourselves just because we're seeking to find our significance in our relationship with other people rather than finding our, our significance in our relationship with God. 
And so the the disunity that marks so much of evangelical Christianity has its roots in pride and selfishness, a refusal to practice the generosity of God towards fellow blood-bought believers. Now, having said that, humility doesn't ignore differences and certainly not turning a blind eye to, to error. So please don't hear me say that. You know, it does mean treating fellow believers as brothers and sisters in Christ as they are and loving them and respecting even the different gospel traditions that we come from. I know for me, I'm not an ecumenical type of person. That has never been my strong suit. But I will say this, I am growing in that, not in the sense of compromising, you know, for the sake of external unity, but I am recognizing the unity of the Spirit uh, across different churches. And I think the thing that has helped me the most with that, because I'm a sort of a person that can focus in on other people's uh, faults or the things that they're doing wrong. And so I have struggled with Phariseeism in the past, and I wish I could say it was all in the past. I Probably not. Um, but anyway, but I think the thing that has helped me the most is to understand that churches and even denominations are at various degrees of maturity. And so as you look at churches, you know, you have to understand that God has worked with different churches or different uh, denominations to varying degrees. So some are more mature in others. Maybe some are more mature in one other area than in another. And that allows, I think that has helped me in terms of being patient with brothers and sisters in Christ, that I might disagree on um, some doctrinal things, but I do recognize that unity in the Spirit. But also, I think we need to be careful to understand that humility doesn't mean naively accepting everyone who professes the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said that by their fruits we would know false teachers, however loudly they may proclaim their orthodoxy. And so we, we need to look at the fruit and understand that um, just because a person says they're a believer doesn't necessarily mean they are. So, so you see that sense of humility of approaching one another, that, that sense of, um, uh, but also we see that we are to have that, that sense of uh, gentleness as, as well. Look at... Uh, Look at verse 3 where it says that. So a second necessary ingredient of the gospel is gentleness. Sadly, though, um, gentleness has not often been associated with evangelical, reformed Christian professions of faith, right? You know, we, as a matter of fact, sometimes when we hear people sort of come to the doctrines of grace, which is sort of ironic, they come to the doctrines of grace, we talk about how they're in that cage stage uh, uh, phase of their life where they're just so zealous for the things that God has done, that then they begin to turn to other Christians and almost take those graces and beat other people over the head. And you're thinking, we need to just put them in a cage for a while and let them sort of settle down. And then once they mature a little bit, then we can let them out with other Christians, you know. And unfortunately, that's sort of been the, the um, reputation that some Reformed churches have had. And, and yet, our Lord Jesus, as I said, also personally drew attention to the presence of this grace in his life as well. I don't know if you still have your fingers in, in Matthew 29, but he said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So you, you see that. Now, in classical Greek, the word that's used to describe 
uh, gentleness is also describes a strength under control. You've probably heard the illustration of a horse that's uh, been harnessed. You have this horse that have this massive amount of strength and energy, and yet because of the harness, they can be guided and directed in different ways. So really, when you're talking about gentleness, you're not talking about weakness here. Indeed, it's just the opposite. You see, the, the gentle are the strong uh, who have found in union with Christ the grace of self-control. Let me say that again. The gentle who are the strong who are, are the strong who have found in union with Christ the grace of self-control. Uh, it is if the unity of the spirit is to maintain gentleness is greatly needed. Uh, believers are always tempted to uh, assert themselves and not listen generously and humbly to the views of others. The gentle are strong in their convictions concerning the truths of the gospel, but hold those strong convictions within the heart that loves the saints. Did you hear that? So there, it doesn't mean that you can't be strong in your convictions, but there is a great love for the saints in which we're talking to. And I think this is important for us, especially as Reformed folks, to remember, because sometimes we're so good at destroying people in their arguments that what we do is, is that we don't love them. And, and it is important that we love the truth. Amen? Because that's part of what love is all about. But also the way that we communicate with others is equally important, God tells us. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. And Paul is counseling Timothy to correct his opponents. Okay, We're talking about the false teachers, those that are opposing Timothy. Uh, and he is telling him to oppose them with gentleness. So it's not just enough to, to say the truth however you want to say it. It's the way in which we say it's important. Look at verse 24. He said, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You see, because of that spirit of gentleness and holding out that truth, it's not compromising the truth, but the manner in which we communicate that truth is important. Isaiah talks about, gives several pictures of, of Jesus as the Messiah dealing gently and forbearingly with fragile and weak uh, members of his flock. In Isaiah 40, verse 11, uh, Jesus is described this way, or the coming Messiah is described this way. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now, that's just a stunning picture of the gentle graces uh, that, that mark God's dealing with his people. Uh, and even in when he corrects us, even when, when God rebukes us, we read in Hebrews chapter 12, that great chapter on how God disciplines his, those he loves, we see such gentleness. And, and this is a, a timely word for us, brothers and sisters, because especially, like I said, you know, the Lord has been gracious to us as a church. We're young. You know, I'm not saying we won't ever have tensions and difficulties, but 
God's grace has abounded wonderfully at Kirk of the Plains. And that's not something I take lightly. It's something I give thanks to God a lot for. And it's something actually I pray for on a regular basis, that God would give us that unity and that love for one another. But as I look at Christians on the Internet particularly, and if you're one that's on the Internet, it's just so easy sometimes to bash people that you can't see, that are faceless, and to sit there and just say, I'm going to throw down the gauntlet of truth and forget that we are called by God because of the grace that he has shown to us to, to do so in a way that is gentle. It's so easy to be bold and, and loose with our tongues when not face to face with others. But where the grace of gentleness is present in believers' uh, lives, the unity of the spirit will be maintained in the bond of peace. And then finally, he talks about patience or long-suffering. God patience with his people is legendary, is it not? I mean, just read the Old Testament and you look at Israel and they just fall back into sin again and again and again. And how is Israel described? As a stiff-necked people. That's just a fancy way of saying they were very proud people, very arrogant people. And yet you see God's patience and his long-suffering with them and he does not destroy them. He disciplines them, but he does not destroy him, destroy them. And, you know, when Moses begged the Lord to show him his glory in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, uh, the Lord did reveal himself. And as he passed by, the Lord proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering or patient and abounding in goodness and truth. That's the character of God. And that is the character that, that he calls us to and the grace that he is working in our lives that we would be such people. But patience essentially means, as, as Paul is telling us here, is to bearing with one another in love. Uh, you know, in 1 Corinthians 13, we, it's, that, it's the love chapter, and it says that love is patient and kind, never insists on its own way, and is not irritable. You see, without this gracious, generous grace, it would be impossible to maintain this unity of the Spirit and patience, like all other Christian graces, is, is a, a gift of God. It doesn't come from us. Brothers and sisters, the church is a fellowship of saved, but not perfect sinners, right? Amen? Um, you know that from church. You know that from your homes. You know, we're not perfect. We all battle with indwelling sin. You know, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 13, paragraph 2, calls it the remnants of corruption. That's just such a great description of it. But we are all prone to disappoint and even fail one another, and sometimes very badly. And that's why God has, uh, is working within us also to forgive one another. Um, but we, therefore, greatly need the Christ-like grace of patience with one another. Now, as I said earlier, we're Paul counseling uh, Timothy to be gentle in the way that he dealt even with those that opposed him. He also says in there too as well that Paul, Paul said to Timothy, patiently enduring evil. Okay, and so there's a sense in which Timothy is putting up with this evil that is coming at him while at the same time he is correcting his opponent's with with gentleness. And I just wonder if how often do we fall into the trap of pointing out someone else's sin and then unconsciously expecting them to repent and believe immediately. 
You know, I mean, I see that it's, here again. I don't mean to talk about the Internet so much, but we spend a lot of our lives there. And you see people are like this person. They ought to be kicked out of the church. And this person here, they ought to take and their elders ought to do blah, 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 blah. And, you know, people just go off at rants and raves. And I'm thinking, do you hear yourself? What you are saying is, is that the Spirit of God should instantly uh, sanctify that person. Or that the church ought to come down and crush that person rather than seeking to see if they might be restored and bearing the burden of that brother. I don't think we consciously do those things, but I think we can fall into the trap and we must be willing to see the Holy Spirit work in others' lives on His timing and in His way. And let us not forget how patient God is with us. You know, it, it is so easy for us to be impatient with others and yet you think, you know, we're not as good as what we think we are, right? You know, we, we think we're probably maybe more sanctified than what we are. But then uh, a, a temptation comes and we fall into that and you're like, oh, why did I do that? And you're just sort of humbled again to realize how patient God has been with you. So as Paul has said in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, put on then, in other words, clothe yourselves. Put it on, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, which is gentleness, and patience. You see, brothers and sisters, in such uh, gospel soil, the, church, the church's unity will take root and it will grow. And for Paul, as in the whole Bible actually, such grace is only the overflow of the grace that God has first shown to us. And so Christians are to treat one another with humility and gentleness and patience because God in Christ has so treated them. And a, a failure to practice those gospel graces puts a huge question mark over our profession of faith. You know, if, 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 uh, if we see one in the church who is always seeking to crush one another and not showing grace to God, it does make you wonder if they have received the grace. But if we encounter such a person, let us not seek to then destroy them. But let us seek to share the gospel with them. You know, but Jesus does warn us that if we don't forgive the sins of others against us from our hearts, we can be sure that God will not forgive our sins against others. So let us pray that God would so work in our hearts as Christians, as a church, pray for the other churches in our city and in our presbytery, that God may so work in our hearts that we would have that unity, uh, that we would maintain that unity that the Spirit of God has given us as He has called and as He has saved us. Amen? Let's uh, take just a few minutes and just meditate upon the word that was preached. Let's have a time of silence. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have uh, so abundantly shown to us. Uh, we pray that you would uh, enable us every day, Lord, to spend time with you, to be reminded of the wonderful grace that you have blessed us with. Uh, Lord, so that as we encounter others, uh, that we would not be looking at the speck of dust in their eye, but Lord, rather we would see the log in our own eye and how you have dealt with that log in, in, in the grace and the mercy and the compassion that you have shown to us. And I pray that we might be like-minded to, to love others. 
God, would you please as well make us a church that even pursues sinners, those that are uh, not wanting to be uh, helped, those, Lord, that are maybe uh, in a dark place and are running away from you. Uh, God, give us such a, a heart of compassion and patience and gentleness and love for others. Uh, and we just pray, God, that in these things, that you would strengthen the bond of unity that we have. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would do that in our, in our church, in our city. I pray that you would do it in our presbytery. God, just to continue the work that you have already started. And I pray that the world would see this. And they would see, wow, these Christians are different. And I pray that many would come to faith in Jesus Christ through the testimony of your church as your spirit works in our midst. We praise you, O God, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.